0: Okay, 2 Kings chapter 4, we learned a lot about a faithful Shunammite woman last week. This woman was barren, her husband was old, and the situation seemed to be impossible. And She expressed her desire to the man of God, Elisha, as he is called the holy man of God in our text, expressed her desire to have a son. And by God's grace, she did. And that's not the end of the story of this Shunammite woman. So we're going to pick up where we left off and learn some more about her and her great faith. 2 Kings chapter 4, now I will read verse 18. And when the child was grown, it fell on a day that he went out to his father, to the reapers. One of the things I tried to do during my study is figure out about how old this child was and there are some clues in our context here or in our text first of all it says when the child was grown so this was not an infant how how much older was he we're not sure but look at the rest of the verse he was old enough to go out to his father in the fields Now, you wouldn't send a toddler on that mission, would you? they find the highway in a second or somebody else's backyard or a swimming pool. So an older child would be entrusted to that task, to go out there where your dad is, expecting that child would safely arrive. And what a sweet sight that must have been to see that little boy running out to where his daddy was working. When my children were small, I would be doing something in the garage outside, maybe fixing something, cleaning or building or some other manly, masculine task. And one of my children would come to where I was and say, What are you doing, Daddy? And I usually stopped what I was doing and answered their question. And if it was safe, I'd let them help me with something. But my children came to me because they loved me, just like this little boy loved his father. Verse 19, And he said unto his father, my head, my head. And he said to a lad, Carry him to his mother. So not only was he grown, old enough to run out to the field where his father was working, but he was old enough to say, My head, my head. He was having a headache. But he was young enough that the father said, Carry him to his mother. Now, obviously, at this point, the father didn't realize how severe these headaches were. He didn't realize what the outcome was going to be. Children have headaches all the time. So do adults. And most of the time, those don't result in the horrible consequences that this one would. Verse 20, And when he had taken him, that is, the, the lad taken the, the small child to his, to his mother, and when he had taken him and brought him to his mother... He sat her on her knees till noon and then died. He was young enough to sit on his mother's knees. For a child, sitting on his mother's knees is a place of great security and comfort. What could harm a child sitting in his mother's arms on her lap? Yet this poor child died after a headache that lasted just a few hours. A stroke, a seizure, an aneurysm, we don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us. But it says he died. Verse 21, And she went up, now this is the mother, and laid him on the bed of the man of God, and shut the door upon him, and went out. You notice this woman did not curse God that her son had died. She simply laid the dead child on the bed of the man of God. This man of God, this prophet, Elisha, was God's representative to her at that time in biblical history. And this mother took an impossible situation and laid that situation on the bed of the holy man of God. We're going to learn something about this. That's already good enough, isn't it, if we just went to the next verse. But this is exactly what we do in a spiritual sense when we preach the gospel to sinners because a sinner is a dead man walking or a dead woman walking in fact here is the condition of a sinner as the bible tells it first of all condemned John 3 and verse 18 John 3 verse 18 says he that hath not believed excuse me He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already. Now that's a person who's still alive. Because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. So the condition of a sinner is number one, condemned, and number two, that sinner is also dead. You may say, well, wait a minute, he's still walking around and breathing and doing all of those things, yet he's dead in his sins. Listen to what the Apostle Paul wrote to the Ephesians, and he's talking to believers about their prior condition before they came to Christ. He said, and you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. Because the sinner is condemned and dead, even though he is physically still alive, then we who preach the gospel of Christ must take that dead, condemned sinner and lay him at the place where the holy man of God was laid, on the cross. Those Roman soldiers had to lay Jesus on the cross and nail him there before they stood that cross up. So that Jesus hung on the cross. He first lay on that cross. In fact, he said he laid his life down. No man taketh his life from him. He laid it down, and he might take it up again. So thinking still of this little boy who was carried by a servant to his mother who loved him, and on whose knees he sat, we realized there was nothing this mother could do to keep him from dying, Or to raise him from the dead. And there is nothing Brother Fulton and I and any other preacher of the gospel can do to keep you from dying or from being spiritually dead. Even though we love you and even if we cradle you in our arms and set you on our knees as this mother. So just like this little boy's mother, we take dead sinners and we lay them at the place where the holy man of God, Jesus Christ lay and hung and died, and that's the cross of Calvary. No, we don't physically carry you anywhere and leave you there like this mother did. We do it in a spiritual sense by preaching the gospel, which you hear, and then we leave your dead sinful self at the cross with the truth of that gospel. And as this woman did, we shut the door upon you, and we go out. Because the work that God does is between you and Him. We've done all we could. We've done all we were supposed to do. Trying to take you by the hand and lead you in some sort of prayer or any of that, that's not part of the gospel. If you're to be brought to life, and I mean to spiritual life, because if you're a sinner and you're unsaved, you're a dead man walking. You're a dead woman walking. But if you're to be brought to life... It'll be God who does that. And he'll do it when your faith is placed in the gospel that you heard, that we preached. How strong was this Shunammite woman's faith? I'm sure she was devastated as any of us would be because, particularly in this instance, that was her only child. But she laid him on that bed anyway, and she shut the door, and she went out. There's a passage about a centurion in the New Testament who had this kind of faith. It's recorded in Matthew chapter 8, verses 5 through 10. Matthew 8, verses 5 through 10. And when Jesus was entered into Capernaum, there came unto him a centurion, beseeching him, and saying, Lord, my servant lieth at home sick of the palsy, grievously tormented. And Jesus saith unto him, I will come and heal him. The centurion answered and said, Lord, I am not worthy that thou shouldest come under my roof, but speak the word only, and my servant shall be healed. For I am a man under authority, having soldiers under me. And I say to this man, Go, and he goeth, and to another, come, and he cometh, and to my servant, do this, and he doeth it. When Jesus heard it, He marveled. There are only two times recorded in the New Testament where Jesus marveled. This is one of them. The other was the unbelief of the people. But Jesus marveled and said to them that followed, Verily I say unto you, I have not found so great faith, no, not in Israel. So what was it that this centurion did? He had a sick servant lying on a bed, grievously tormented, having a palsy. And he did essentially the same thing this Shunammite woman did. He left him on the bed, shut the door, and he went, and he left it in Jesus' hands. He told Jesus, he said, Jesus, I don't even need you to come to my house. I'm not even worthy of that. If you'll speak the word, then it'll happen. Not every prayer for a sick person has this outcome. Sometimes God will allow someone to die, someone for whom we've been praying maybe for years. But we who trust him know that he had a better plan than the one we prayed for. I currently have a co-worker who is battling cancer. And it's a hard road for her. And I've prayed that God would heal her and that he would show himself mighty to her and that her heart would be turned to him. And and I hope that he does. But if he doesn't, It doesn't mean that there was something wrong with my faith or something wrong with what I asked God for. It's that he had a better plan. And whatever he does, I want him to be glorified in it. So don't think that if the sick person for whom you were praying dies, that your faith wasn't strong enough. And you know there are some religions that will lead you to believe that. That's an awful lot of guilt to walk around with, and you don't have to have it. You don't have to carry that. The fact that you took that person's cause to the Lord and left it there is evidence enough of your faith. That's what we do. We take God at his word. Look now in verse 22. And she called unto her husband and said, Send me, I pray thee, one of the young men and one of the asses, that I may run to the man of God and come again. You know, she didn't trouble her husband to come to her aid, and it looks like she never told him that the son had died. Otherwise, I believe the husband would have run from the field to his son, but instead he just had one of the young men bring her an ass so she could ride to where the man of God was. Verse 23, and the husband here is speaking to the wife, to the mother. And he said, Wherefore wilt thou go to him today? It is neither new moon nor Sabbath. And she said, It shall be well. She still didn't tell him why she was going. He asked her if she was going to the man of God for some religious reason, particularly because of a special day, a new moon or a Sabbath. And I think the fact that she lay her son on a bed, shut the door, and never told her husband about it, It meant that she knew she could put this problem in God's hands, because her answer was, it shall be well. Now, if you have a King James translation, the words, it shall be, are in italics. That means they were supplied by the translators, instead of just putting the word well. That happens when you translate from one language to another those words sometimes have to be supplied. I've used this example before. I'm fluent in Spanish, so I can speak from a, a point of knowledge here that there are words in Spanish uh, that you use one word, but if you translate to English, you have to use two words. So, ponia, that could be translated to I put. Now. I didn't hear the word yo in the Spanish language. I didn't say it. It was ponia, I put. It's called an imperfect tense. So think of that when you see these italics in the King James translation. Don't think, oh, goodness, they're they're adding to the word of God. No, they're trying to help you understand the word of God. So only one word, and that's the word well, is translated from the Hebrew. Do you know what the word... The Hebrew word for well is right here. That's what this woman said. She said it shall be well. That word is shalom. Which is almost always translated as the word peace in the Old Testament. So she literally told her husband, peace, peace. Peace is what the world says it wants. But it ignores the prince of peace. In favor of the prince of this world. Isn't that something? You know, I desire to have peace with everyone. I don't like conflict. And you would think, well, boy, you sure are in the wrong profession to avoid conflict. I didn't say I had to avoid it. I just said I don't like it. And I do everything I can when I go on a call for service to bring peace. Sometimes that means arresting someone. Sometimes that means having people separate for the night because they're acting like children. But I don't like conflict. It stresses me out, particularly when it's among loved ones, even more so in the church. But I know this kind of peace is difficult to have because we're fallen creatures with a fallen flesh living in a fallen world. But the peace that I know you can have is the peace this Shunammite woman had. That's the kind I want everyone to have. Any peace that man forges on this earth is going to be short-lived. Here's an example of the kind of peace that I not only want to have, but that I do have with some people. Without ever having had the privilege to personally meet Brother Espeso or Brother Odero. Brother Espeso is an evangelist, a pastor in the Philippines, and Brother Odero is in Africa. I believe he's in Kenya. Did you know without ever having met them, I have peace with those men? I have peace through or with God through his son, Jesus Christ. Just like the book of Romans says, chapter 5. We have peace with God through our Savior, Jesus Christ. And those men have peace with God through his son, the same son. And because we three have peace with God through his son, Jesus Christ, we have peace together. And you know on that basis, Christians should never be found quarreling or having strife with one another. It should never happen. To have a quarrel with another Christian means that one or both of you have yielded to the flesh rather than yielding to the Spirit of God. If we're both led by the Spirit of God and what God's Word says, we won't have a quarrel. We just won't. It's a mathematical, spiritual impossibility. You show me any quarrel that you've ever had or someone has ever had with you, and I'll be able to show you that pride, or something in the flesh, went before that. Verse 24. Then she saddled an ass and said to her servant, Drive and go forward. Slack not thy riding for me except I bid thee. That servant was to drive the ass, drive this donkey without slowing down unless she said so. In other words, what we might say is don't take it easy on my account, go. You know, I took my father fishing for his 80th birthday a few weeks ago, and we were out in the Galveston area fishing in the bay. And let me tell you, it was the wind never stopped blowing. I thought I was in West Texas again, where I grew up. And I was driving that boat across that bay, and every once in a while I'd look over at Dad and say, are you Okay. That's an 80-year-old man. He's in pretty good shape, but he's still riding on those choppy waves, and that boat's hitting like this, and it's windy, and it's rough. And he'd say, I'm good, go. So that's what I wanted to know. Well, this woman said, don't slow the boat down for me. You just take out across the bay, and I'll deal with the waves. This ride would surely be uncomfortable, but this wasn't a luxury ride like ours was. I could afford to slow down if I needed to and negotiate those waves in a calmer manner. We weren't in a big hurry. But for this woman, there was a more important purpose than her comfort on the journey. Many shallow Christians and unbelieving religious folks, there's a lot of them in church today, you know, a lot of folks going to church today who are not believers. But many shallow Christians and unbelieving religious folks, believe Christianity ought to be smooth sailing. And if it's not, there's something wrong with Christianity. They don't want a bumpy ride. They'd rather just not get on the old ship of Zion than to be tossed about with those winds and waves that are part of the Christian journey. But this Shunammite woman, like a committed Christian, was willing to accept that the ride is going to be bumpy. She was on her way to the holy man of God. John 16, verse 33, John 16, verse 33, just in case a person says, well, the Christian ride's supposed to be smooth, listen to what Jesus said about it. These things have I spoken unto you, that in me you might have peace. In the world you shall have tribulation. Well, what did he just tell us? You're going to have a bumpy ride in the world. Not in me, but in the world. Jesus' yoke is easy, but our yoke with the world is not. But be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. So he let us know it's going to be a bumpy ride, but I've overcome it. And that ride won't be bumpy for us.
1: Just while we're in the world. We're looking forward to that smooth
0: sailing, as it were. Listen to what Paul wrote in Second Timothy 3, verses 10-13. through Second Timothy chapter three verses ten through thirteen, and this is what every young aspiring preacher or every old aspiring preacher ought to be told before he goes into the pastoral ministry or he even thinks about. It. But thou hast fully known my doctrine, manner of life,
1: purpose, faith, long suffering, charity, patience, persecutions. Affliction came
0: unto me at Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra. What persecutions I endured, but out of them all the Lord delivered me. Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. But evil men and seducers
1: shall wax worse and worse, deceiving, being deceived. So, in summary, If that's not plain enough, Paul told Timothy, here's what my faith,
0: doctrine, and manner of life, long-suffering, charity, patience have resulted in. Here's what it's gotten me, persecution and affliction in this world.
1: God delivered me out of them all. Everyone
0: who lives as I live are going to suffer the same. In fact, it's going to get worse. Because he said those evil seducers wax worse and worse.
1: The bumpy ride you're on as a Christian is going to get bumpier the longer you live. How's that for an encouraging word to the new pastor?
0: I think if that's the charge we preach to hiring pastors, in fact, these young men who go to Bible college, if we just step in there first day of their freshman year and say, let me tell you guys something. Here's what you're in for. Some of them might get up and go get their tuition back and go home and go to trade school or do something else, and there's nothing wrong. Not everybody who goes into the pastoral ministry is called to do that. Some feel pressured. Some do it because they think, "Well, I want to be a preacher. My preacher's pretty popular. Everybody likes him." They don't realize this is really the charge they need to hear. Is the one Paul gave to Timothy, the new Ephesian pastor.
1: So we learn something from this Shunammite woman who anticipated a bumpy ride on that donkey. Her journey to the holy man of God, she was willing to go nevertheless. Look at verse 25. So she went
0: and came unto the man of God to Mount Carmel. And it came to pass when the man of God saw her afar off, that he said to Haji, his servant, Behold, yonder is that Shunab. Look back up at the first part of that verse where it said so she went, especially at the word so. Now she's been warned and she knew ahead of time that this would be a bumpy ride. She knows that riding on a donkey at any speed at all is going to be bumpy. They're not built with shock absorbers. don't like to take it easy
1: on you. Yet there's one thing you might miss. After knowing all that, after being willing to go, so she went. When you hear that the Christian journey is difficult, unpopular, even dangerous, will it be said of you, so she went? So he went.
0: You know, we don't get preach a gospel that gives you peace with the world. There are people who, whatever reason, they're longing for a gospel that brings peace with the world. I read... And I shouldn't do this because I just get mad every time I do it. I read an article about how some church has deviated
1: from what the scriptures say is right. And then I read the comment. Now, the article was bad enough. But I read what people said. In fact, it was in one of our it was in the Rockwallian a place where people from Rockwall get all of their information, including some of their doctrine. And a particular church was being talked about. There was a homosexual. Wanted to go to that church with a partner. So
0: at first, three or four who commented and said, well, we'd be glad to have you, but just know that our pastor is going to preach God's word. Not going to be in favor of that sin, but we love you. That was good. After that, most of those comments were about how that was not a real church if it didn't accept you just like you are, and try to agree and then it talked about churches in the area who were pro LGBTQ and all of that, and I just got madder and madder, and I said, Shut. what was i
1: what was I expecting? So she went now, this gospel that we preach,
0: same one Paul preached. Same one Moses preached and Abraham preached and that God preached to Adam and Eve in the garden and it divides you from this unbelieving world. It doesn't make peace with this unbelieving world. And yes, you still live here in this unbelieving world, but you don't belong here. And you who believe this gospel and know the testimony of Christians in the Bible who were imprisoned tortured, mocked, killed, and yet you're still willing to travel this road anyway, knowing that we're going to be united with our Savior when we die or when he comes to get us, you're the real deal. Elisha and Gehazi were at Mount Carmel, Now, what happened there in recent memory? The prophets of Baal and the prophets of the groves were slain, weren't they, in Elijah's day? God showed himself mighty to all those who had halted between two opinions. You remember that question Elijah asked them? How long halt ye between two opinions? If Baal be God, serve him. If the Lord be God, then serve him. This Shunammite woman did not halt between two opinions. She was not afraid to go to Mount Carmel. Nothing that happened there would have been a problem for her. Where the God of her salvation showed himself to be mighty. And our text tells us that Elisha recognized her by sight, though she was far off. Just as you might recognize a friend by his build or his gait or his posture. Verse 26, he tells Gehazi, run now, I pray thee, to meet her and say unto her, is it well with thee? Now we already know the answer, don't we? Because she said it is well to her husband. Is it well with thy husband? Is it well with the child? And she answered, it is well. So those are the three questions Elisha gave to Gehazi to ask this woman. Are you okay? Is your husband okay? Is your child okay? Is it well? Is there peace? And he sent his servant to run, not walk. Meeting her hurriedly, which is the crux of that word run, is to go hurriedly. Meeting her hurriedly was in order, considering how she had shown Elisha great kindness when she and her husband built that that chamber, that prophet's chamber, and fed him at their table. And I believe because she was a godly woman. We saw great evidence of that already, didn't we? In my 26-year ministry as a Bible teacher and church member and right-hand man to my pastors, I can say there are some people whom I was always glad to see, and I'm glad to see you this morning, by the way. I'm glad to see when I look at the Facebook comments later for the broadcast, I'm glad to see those from Bowie, Texas and from Kentucky and from across the world, people who join us and. Say, praise God, or thank you for the good teaching, or whatever their encouragement may be. And for people like that at church, I was glad to walk hurriedly to the parking lot when they came in, or into the church when I saw them, to greet them. They were special to me, just like this woman is special to Elisha. However, there were a few I could have gone a long time without seeing again. Those few people who were generally thorns in my side, people who just wanted to complain about the problems but never had a solution. See, I don't mind somebody coming to me with a problem, but be sure you bring a solution in your other suitcase. Don't just put a problem down and walk away because I'm going to send the suitcase with you in most cases. Or people who just wanted to talk about carnal stuff all the time when I wanted to visit about what God's word said on a matter. If you want to quench my enthusiasm a little bit after we hear a wonderful message from God's Word, and I'm rejoicing, just say, Well, who do you think's gonna win the Super Bowl, Andy? That'll do it. You know what? I don't care. I don't care if there is a Super Bowl. And to this highly treasured woman, the Shunammite woman, Yehazi was instructed to ask whether it was well as she, her husband, and her son, and look at her answer. She said, it is well. It's the same thing she said to her husband. She didn't tell her husband, oh, everything's going to be all right. And then on this trip, when Gehazi interviews her, say, you know what? It's bad. Oh, it's bad. She told him the same thing she told her husband. Because in her heart, it was well. There was peace. A woman whose only child had died hours before is able to tell Gehazi, shalom peace it is well verse 27 and when she came to the man of God to the hill she caught him by the feet but Gehazi came near to thrust her away and the man of God said let her alone for her soul is vexed within her and the Lord hath hid it from me and hath not told me what a poor pitiful woman she was This woman who was great in society's eyes. Remember the introduction of this Shunammite woman told us she was a great woman. So she was great in society's eyes, but she was now in great sorrow. So much so that she lowered herself to hug the feet of the man of God. This reminds me of a passage in Luke chapter 7, verses 37 through 39. Luke 7, verses 37 through 39. And behold, a woman in the city, which was a sinner, when she knew that Jesus sat at meat in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster box of ointment, and stood at his feet behind him weeping, and began to wash his feet with tears, and did wipe them with the hairs of her head, and kissed his feet. Now to do that, she had to lower herself from that standing position down to... Uh, probably on her knees or something like that, and anointed them with ointment. Now when the Pharisee, which hath bidden him, saw it, he spake within himself, saying, This man, if he were a prophet, would have known who and what manner of woman this is that toucheth him, for she is a sinner. So although this Pharisee is not said to have physically thrust her away, he did so in his heart, didn't he? well, Well, she's not worthy to... To come to him, and plus, the Pharisee who loved to accuse Jesus said he doesn't know what he's doing receiving her. He doesn't understand the significance of that. And this Shunammite woman who was holding to Elisha by his feet, and though the text doesn't tell us, she was probably weeping as well, was to Gehazi
1: a bother, she was a pest.
0: But to Elisha, she was a precious woman whose soul was vexed. If you think about the image of here, that's here. A a great woman of Shunem who stood above many of her fellow citizens had lowered herself to the lowest part of Elisha, his feet. She was on the ground. Pride was nowhere to be found. She knew God was no respecter of persons. She didn't say, well, Elisha, I would lay down as the commoner does and hold you by the feet, but I'm a a great woman. I'm a person of great authority, and she didn't do that. And she knew this holy man of God would not be a respecter of persons either. A lesson we learn here is that no matter how high and lofty you are in this world, it would be a great privilege for you If you had to humble yourself like this before the holy man of God, yes, it would be a privilege.
1: A prideful man wouldn't do it.
0: What does the Bible tell us goes before destruction? Pride. Pride goeth before destruction and an haughty spirit before a fall. In Galatians chapter 6 and verse 3, Galatians 6 verse 3, Paul wrote, for if a man think himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceiveth himself. See, that would be the person who says, well, I'm in I'm in great authority. I don't have to bow down to
1: anybody. Many unbelievers look down
0: on Christianity and Christians. They say we cling to our Bibles, and I do plead guilty to that. This is the only journalistic source I can trust completely. They say religion is a crutch for the weak. And I say, amen, I'm weak. <laughs> it's more than a crutch for me. It's a lifeboat. Like the ark was in Noah's day that bore his family and he, him up to safety. So Jesus bore my sins and he bears me up on his wings that I may escape this wrath that's coming for this unbelieving world.
1: Yes, I cling to my Bibles. And yes, religion, pure and undefiled religion,
0: that is, the religion of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's a lifeboat, more than a crutch to me. So Gehazi, the text tells us, came near to thrust her away. Now, Gehazi was a good servant, but he forgot for a moment, just for a moment,
1: that for such a woman as this Shunammite woman, was Elijah sent into this world.
0: God had predestined this series of events that he might show himself mighty. And Gehazi was trying to interfere with that, though he was probably ignorant of the significance of his actions. We know God was displeased with it because we have another example of that behavior in the New Testament found in Matthew chapter 19 verses 13 through 15, Matthew 19, verses 13 through 15, if you're taking notes. Then were there brought unto him little children that he should put his hands on them and pray and the disciples rebuked them. But Jesus said, suffer little children, that means allow, allow little children and forbid them not to come unto me for of such is the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and departed thence. You see, Elisha in our text responded just as Jesus did when Elisha said, let her alone. Jesus said, let them alone. Suffer them, allow them to come to me. Let her alone, that Hebrew word that is let her alone or is uh, translated as the word feeble or "weaken." Or fail. The idea here is that Elisha was telling Yehazi to relax. Weaken your grip on her. Let her go. Don't be trying to drag her off. And he said she was vexed. That means bitter. The root word for this word bitter is used in Exodus chapter 15 verse 23. Exodus 15 verse 23. It's been a while since we've been in Exodus for verse-by-verse verse study, hasn't it? And this speaks of the children of Israel who've been freed from bondage and they're now in the wilderness. God's leading them through the wilderness. It says, And when they came to Marah, they could not drink of the waters of Marah, for they were bitter. Therefore, the name of it was called Marah. So Mara and bitter were the same thing. And we learned something about those bitter waters, didn't we? You might have to clean the cobwebs out of your memory a little bit. But we learned that God had a way to make those bitter waters sweet. Listen to verses 24 and 25 in that same passage in Exodus 15, It's verses 24 and 25. It said, And the people murmured against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? And he cried unto the Lord, And the Lord showed him a tree, which when he had cast into the waters, the waters were made sweet. There he made for them a statute and an ordinance, and there he proved them. You see, it was when the waters were bitter that God tested his people, brought them to the end of themselves. There was nothing they could do to make that water sweet. And whatever that tree was that they threw into the water wouldn't have done it without God's hand on it. These people had given up on anything they could do to make the bitter become sweet. And this Shunammite woman is bitter, she's vexed. And she can't make the bitter become sweet. And then the last part of verse 27, Elisha says. And the Lord hath hid it from me, and hath not told me. Elisha knows this woman is bitter, that she is vexed. He doesn't know why yet. And perhaps had God revealed that to him before this, maybe Elisha would have gone running to her. But it was God's perfect will that she come running to Elisha and figuratively to God. Verse 28, and we'll close. Then she said, Did I desire a son of my Lord? Did I not say, do not deceive me? Now Elisha knows why she's vexed. She asked for a son. She was given one. And now he's been taken from her. And she thought Elisha deceived her, but she says no more than these few words. And we'll pick up with what Elisha's response is next week. Let's be dismissed in prayer. Father, thank you for the good attendance and the good attention your word had and your word deserves this morning. Father, I pray that you would help us to take in all these truths, all the wonderful doctrine that you've taught us through your word, and make that our doctrine. And Lord, that it would be precious to us,
1: not something to be resisted and fought against, and that our faith would increase. And as we go into our next hour, Lord, we want our assembly to please you from the singing,
0: the preaching, the words we say to each other, and Father, we want you to be glorified in your Son as he is lifted high as the only hope of salvation, we pray it in Jesus'
1: name, amen.